This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network, South Asian Studies. We are here today with Sushmita Pati. Sushmita is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the National Law School of India University, Bangalore. She studied political science at Delhi University and Jawaharlal Nehru University. She is interested in studying the intersections of urban politics and political economy. Her recent book, which we are going to talk about today, Properties of Rent, Community, Capital, and Politics in Globalizing Delhi is now out from Cambridge University Press. Sushmita, welcome to the show and thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Sharonik, for having me. Thank you. Um, let me just ask you my very first question, um, which is, uh, you know, before we kind of dive into your scholarship, I'm so excited to talk about Delhi with you. And, you know, I went to JNU like you, I said, lived there for five years and then I've never, you know, loved the city more. So let me ask you a personal question, which is why did you decide to work on Delhi in the first place? And, you know, and I guess a subset of this question, how did rent become the object of your study? Um, so there's no one reason for having taken up Delhi as my field of study. I also quite like you, I, I came to the city pretty early as an at at the age of 18 to study and uh, uh, as in a big part of negotiating with uh, you know your own freedoms you're becoming an adult um, finding your place in in the world was about negotiating the space in the city so uh, my I I quite uh, associate um, my own growth or my own uh, understanding with uh, with the city itself. So um, so yeah. So as and I think it, this is a controversial point, but precisely like you like you said, you never love a city more if you've spent a significant part of your youth in 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 Delhi. But it's also so fascinating. You meet the most interesting of people. You meet the you have the most bizarre experiences in the city, which makes you 
think so much more about the place, its people, and uh, what it means. So, so yeah, so that's the reason why um, Delhi as a city, and, and, and I thought, as in, when it came to choosing a research topic, um, I couldn't come up with anything else but but the city. So I grew up in a a, a planned township in in a small town in Jharkhand. Uh, so when I came to Delhi, I was quite fascinated with the with the buildings, with uh, the Luchens and you know these uh, uh, these big places in, in and big and small uh, uh, all kinds of spaces in 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 in, in Delhi. Um, so my first work was, uh, which is for my MPhil dissertation, was around the uh, the statues of uh, the colonial administrators that were left behind. Uh, and part of it was also on uh, uh, Latin's Delhi and how that had to transform after India gains independence. Uh, and, and some part of it had to deal with, uh, again, these big temples coming up. Why is it that you suddenly have these uh, big temples uh, dotting the, uh, the landscape, like Akshadham and, and, uh, uh, and Hanuman statue somewhere? Uh, so what does it mean for uh, a city, and especially in its uh, post-2000 uh, uh, form? Right. So those were the questions that interested me immediately, which are questions of public history. But by, by my PhD, I had moved on to looking at urban forms. Um, so uh, this was actually my supervisor's idea, saying that why don't you look at this? Uh, in fact, nobody has written on it, and in, nobody really had. So I thought, yeah, this is interesting. But I went in pretty blind. I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at i knew i'm interested in this contradiction like what are these urban villages you know these what is so urban about them and what is so village about them right uh, uh, what is it that uh, you know fundamentally makes a city a city and a village a village are these just purely aesthetic distinctions that we make you know village needs to have a bullock cart or a uh, or a village cannot have an a, a dish antenna tv so as in are those the kind of distinctions we make between a village and a city because that's when we see that you know those distinctions sort of even uh, 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 heuristically if you have to make them the sort of sort of break down like a village can be a village where you know you don't have any of these but and, and a city can have all of these and, and can have can have a bullock cart can have you know a, 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 a cattle around and still be a city right so then what is it that we are really looking at in terms of a village and a city so those were the questions that were immediately of interest to me um, rent is something that became more important to me much later it's only towards the end of my field work that I began fiddling with rent as a conceptual category uh, and more or less and and and, and moreover as a uh, as what i'm calling a social life of rent so that began to become more more and more uh, important to me towards the latter half so much of what i write about rent as an analytic it develops as my post phd work um, it's there in snatches in my phd but in 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 quite uh, a substantial manner it develops much later yeah um i was just having a vision of oscar's village in present delhi the, the the class connotations of the word village is very different and and precisely these are questions that 
uh, you know, uh, uh, that's what my argument is. And that's what I, I find so alluring about the concept of rent. These are precisely the, the questions that somehow capital as an analytic category has not been able to answer because it looks at uh, the question of uh, uh, urban transformation as either one of dispossession, that capital comes in and dispossesses people further and further, or it looks at it through the aspect of gentrification, that uh, a village becomes a place like uh, is, gets, gets dispossessed and then slowly becomes into an urban uh, 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 form, right? You know, a building comes up in front, in, in place of a farm. So that's the kind of uh, 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 literature that we that we have seen. But it's precisely these places like like a horse cars, which is not a transient uh, uh, kind of a form. It's here to stay, and these are uh, these in between spaces which have a very different story to tell, which is not one of dispossession which is also not of gentrification, but that only explains only so much. Um, that's why I think rent could be useful in, in explaining some of these gaps in, 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 in the urban studies scholarship. That's fascinating because it, it really, our listeners will read the book, but it's wonderful how you kind of maintain the thread of that uh, analytic. But in, in your first chapter, you talk about historical origins of this, uh, of this, you know, uh, economic landscape, and you'd map the changing geography of the city over decades based on land acquisition and <clears throat> the location of that land and the time of its acquisition. So um, can I ask you to give us a brief overview of this process, which is very complex, of course? Oh, of course. So um, I, this is, uh, since this is the first chapter, I start from the time of land acquisition itself, which is 1950s. And as we all know, 1950s is a fairly interesting period in, in Delhi's history, in Delhi's life, uh, because this is uh, right after independence when partition has taken place. There's a huge influx of migrants uh, with, who are coming in. Um, Delhi is uh, suddenly the capital of a post-colonial uh, uh, state, um, which has to then expand and grow. So as a result, um, there is, in order to make this space, you know, for this new capital city, um, what begins to happen is, is of course, land acquisition. So this is probably one of the biggest uh, uh, land acquisition that ever took place. It's around 34,000 acres of land, uh, which lied outside of, uh, on the southern fringes of the city, begins to get acquired by the state. Right, and this is what we today know as as uh, quote unquote South Delhi. This is probably the most uh, expensive, the most uh, the, the 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 most uh, uh, let's say posh localities of of Delhi. The most expensive restaurants and uh, hotels are all uh, uh, around South Delhi. But this is also, uh, in a way, uh, 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 a reflection of what the Nehruvian post-colonial uh, post city was supposed to be like, right? It was supposed to have uh, uh, 
these nice residential localities, which is supposed to be made by the Delhi Development Authority. It is supposed to have uh, these nice uh, middle class uh, shopping complexes, big wide roads, and of course, most importantly, institutions, right? So it's it's not uh, 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 really a circumstance, uh, it's not really a, a coincidence that IIT and uh, JNU and these big institutions with a lot of land begin to come up around South Delhi. And in many ways, if you look at it, the story of uh, 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 land crunch, you know, the shortage of land is also related to this the story of these big institutions coming up and then uh, getting so much land, right? So, um, so that's what uh, 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 I'm looking at. And much of these institutions, these colonies, these complexes are all built on these erstwhile village agricultural land. So in... So what I'm trying to tell in, in, this, in this book is this, the, this shadow of, uh, of the modern city. So what's happening behind uh, the scenes, right? So, uh, so I'm looking at this transition of, uh, of, of, of uh, these village lands and village agricultural lands into uh, 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 you know, urban uh, modern city uh, uh, kind of urbanization right uh, yeah so as so when i'm looking at um, uh, uh, um, land acquisition i see that there are two things which become important one is of course the question of time and the other is that of location so um, between the question of uh, be, between the time when land is notified to the time that the land is actually taken up for development there is a significant time gap Right. So as a result, what happens is that the moment this news of notification reaches people, right, they begin to speculate on land. They begin to uh, uh, all kinds of uh, developments begin to crop up for various kinds of complicated reasons. Right. So as a result, when the state finally arrives to develop that land, that land is already built. Right. It's already developed into a market, into residential colonies, into into so many more things. And this is the story of unauthorized colonies of, of Delhi for the, for the most part, right? This is uh, one land, land gets notified, it's, it's just uh, uh, indiscriminately built on, and then what you see is uh, uh, the story of, 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 uh, of unauthorized colonies. So in a way, the slow bureaucratic uh, process is met with this very fast um, kind of speculative activity that is done by people, right? And that's where this tension really lies. The other question of time is also one of um, the time of acquisition. So in a village that I study, uh, the acquisition itself was stretched over two decades. So people's fates depended on sheer luck on when their land was actually acquired. Right, so if you if your land got acquired in the 1950s, then you got a pittance for it. But if your land got acquired later, then you probably were able to negotiate much better with the state. So those kinds of unevenness in the process really made a difference to very to individual family, to individual uh, story of of land acquisition. The same happens with uh, uh, location as well, right? So with rural land land intrinsically can carry value, right? So depending on the quality of land, whether it's irrigated or not, right? There is a certain kind of quality, quality of land on which you can base the price of the land. But when it comes to urban land, 
intrinsic value doesn't matter. What matters is what's outside it, right? So is there a, a big road crossing by, passing by your, your land? So then your land has more, more value, right? If, uh, uh, is there a shopping complex next, next door? So then your land, you can, you can claim higher value for, for your land. So then what happens between, so what I'm seeing in these historical land acquisition documents is there's this complete, uh, 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 let's say amnesia, uh, I wouldn't say amnesia, I would say there's a complete negation of uh, the, the fact that actually speculation is happening, that this is not rural land you're talking about, right? Much of it's built. But then you, in land acquisition documents are constantly saying, oh, no, this is, you know, rural land, and this is a quality of land, so therefore we will only value it this much. And the people are contesting it. People are saying that, no, this isn't just rural land, you know, so, and, and then you see courts step in and then all kinds of negotiations around uh, what is really the value of the land, right? So that's, uh, that's why I'm saying that the, the question of time and location both become important in, in sort of determining individual fates of, of people. So in many ways, land acquisition here, so land acquisition is often seen as this event, right? Like it, it happens once, it strikes like lightning, and then it changes everything. But uh, in my work, I see it as um, a very long drawn event, which, uh, which is probably not even an event, right? It's, it's a process almost, right? And, uh, and has a, a varying effect on, on people's lives. Um, so speaking of that, you know, this protracted process of, of land um, acquisition and uh, so in, in your next chapter, you uh, look at the residents of this, the erstwhile residents of these villages, uh, which were swallowed up by the growing city and who received compensation for their acquired land. And um, so how does this process, as you find, determine the recent histories of these communities? Uh, so... Like I was alluding before, this isn't a story of complete dispossession, right? So these are the stories, as in the stories of dispossession that we know, of, of land acquisition that we know, we know of uh, people actually being dispossessed and having resettled and, and the struggles that they face, right? For some strange reason, uh, the government at this time did not quite adopt that policy. It's not very clear why. But it could be to avoid to keep the prices down or for uh, to avoid the complication of resettlement. Probably those were the reasons. But the policy that the government adopts is is precisely this: that their agricultural land would be acquired, but the residential land of the village, where the villages uh, are, like with the huts and the whatever the the havelis and these older uh, 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 houses are, it's called the abadi area in 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 in. Uh, 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 in, in technical terms, uh, that is not going to be disturbed. So as a result, what happens is that the, the agricultural land is taken away, right? Um, and this is what the negotiations are, are over. And uh, But they're not entirely displaced. So what you see is then agri agrarian pastoral community, which is the Jats. I'm looking at only Jats, uh, uh, but they could be Gujar villages also, um, who are now uh, left with no livelihood uh, of their own. But they, what they have is some amount of compensation money. 
and what they have to do is to now negotiate with this growing city uh, and try to figure out new kinds of, uh, uh, let's say, livelihoods for themselves. So which is why uh, in the second chapter, I talk about how they're now uh, 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 sort of investing their money in, um, in infrastructural projects, in say, they're getting into contracting business, they're getting into transport. And much later in post-1990s, you see that uh, I'm talking about how they become, uh, 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 they begin to invest in, in housing, which is probably one of the most important kind of, uh, let's say, infrastructure in, in any city. So that's uh, precisely uh, what I uh, uh, look at. Uh, so I look at two villages. One is Munirka and the other is Shapujar. Both are around five kilometers apart from each other. Both of them were acquired in the 1950s, around the same time. But they have different stories, uh, precisely because of the, again, the question of location. Munirka is located right next to uh, uh, the ring road, which uh, becomes an arterial road. So because, it's, because of its construction, this land, this village becomes commercialized pretty, pretty early. It gets commercialized as early as uh, uh, early 1960s. It, it markets and everything are beginning to crop up. It's also right opposite R.K. Puram, which is the government uh, uh, colony. It's a huge government, uh, central government uh, colony that comes up right opposite it. So Munirka, in a way, begins to cater to, uh, 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 to that locality. Uh, but on the other hand, Shapurjat, which is acquired at the same time, does not see that kind of development uh, uh, right almost immediately uh, because it's further from any, any major important roads. So until 1978-79, until it's decided that Asian Games Village will come up uh, close to this, this on Shapurjat's agricultural land, people are still doing agriculture there. So, uh, so that's the difference. So this place begins to uh, develop very, very differently. Shapujat, right? uh, for some reason, becomes home to uh, uh, garment artisans, to, to, to like uh, carigars who work on, on garments. Um, and it becomes home to these small uh, little, uh, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing spaces. Right? On the other hand, uh, Munirka becomes a residential space. So uh, migrants who are looking for a place to live uh, begin to, and initially their construction workers were all employed in, in constructing the infrastructure around Delhi, they begin to live in, in these villages. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, where the differences are. So as a result, what happens is that because Monika has already developed, it, it goes in the direction of uh, 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 making spaces for uh, more and more migrants. So post-1990s, uh, there is a strong influx of migrants, uh, a different class of migrants into the city, who are now uh, looking not for manufacturing jobs, they're looking for service jobs, right? So it's BPO workers, it's students like you and me who landed up in, in the city, uh, it's uh, 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 UPSC aspirants who are landing up in the city. Uh, so uh, these villages, at least a village like Munirka, begins to cater to this uh, 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 kind of migrants who cannot afford upper middle class localities in Delhi, but also cannot live in slums. Um, 
so that becomes the uh, becomes Monika's uh, 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 kind of rental market. Shahpurjad, on the other hand, uh, becomes home. Like I said, it, it, uh, some uh, garment uh, uh, craftsmen and manu- uh, manufacturers had already started making this place. By two thousands, um, these new um, uh, fashion designers begin to set up workshops because the garment karigars uh, are already there. Right? So you have designers like Rohit Bal who make a big name for themselves in the industry begin to open up workshops there. Um, and soon what happens is that this begins to be curated into um, a sort of a niche um, garment, uh, almost a boutique kind of a, of a market where all kinds of small designers, even big designers, begin to open up these these uh, 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 boutiques for themselves. Uh, 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 yeah, and soon it becomes very, very popular with the uh, uh, the Delhi wedding clientele, right? So if you if you if you ha- have a big fat wedding in in Delhi, so then this is where you go in order to get your uh, clothes made, right? So you see a very different kind of investment in in a place like Shapujat, where people are more invested in upgrading. Uh, their their rental properties. They want uh, cobbled so- stones. They want uh, uh, they want to put up you know uh, 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 street lights and so on and so forth. So I think in what you said, uh, we have just come up to the time of liberalization, 1990. And you in your third chapter, you take up the period since liberalization, and you say that a um, a different kind of rental economy arises in this period and how conventional understandings of neoliberal organization might fall short in in explaining it. So what does this economy look like? Um, So I do tell a chronological story in the book. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that by 1990, things begin to change quite rapidly for these villages. So with the move from manufacturing to service, it's of course it's a it's an entire shift for an entire country in terms of what the economy is going to be like but for these villages what's happening is that until 1990 it's only the outer fringe of these villages which have transformed the inside of the villages as 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 the villages are on on the inside they remain quite uh, unchanged and untouched right we into the 1990s, way into until 1990s, but post 1990s, what happens is that the village land, because real estate becomes such a big thing post liberalization, that the village land itself becomes speculative, and this period is important for the one crucial reason that the village land, because it was non-revenue earning, it was never mapped on the colonial records, so as a result the understanding of property itself in these villages was often based on a historical understanding of, oh, this is this land pers- land belongs to this person and this belongs to this person. But the moment village land begins to have value, that understanding entirely breaks. So there's a time when a messy scamper for land actually takes place where people just grab whatever piece of land they could. So there's a time when a lot of bitter fights begin to take place between neighbors and brothers over land. But in in the end, these villages become increasingly cramped with everyone having grabbed whatever piece of land that they could. 
but to me the story is also important because um this also brings about the nature of this deep sense of collective ownership of land that defines their historical sense of self and i'm here talking about the jhart communities it's a longer story about uh, how uh, uh, jhats historically have uh, um, identified with uh, land ownership and much work has been done on that so i, I won't go into that uh, and this is what i'm saying is not something capital explains very well to me this dogged attachment to land the sense of ownership can only be explained through rent because it's a uh, capital which works on the logic of quick selling buying and speculating but rent on the other hand depends on this thick notion of collective ownership of the same resource like right? it could be oil for someone it's in this case it's land here right so i trace this complex process by which villagers are being able to suddenly like of course there is a lot of like i said there's a lot of bad blood there is a lot of you know feuds which crop up but eventually it all settles down and it settles down into a rather let's say closely knit sort of a rental market and to my mind it almost works like a cartel right where almost every participant owns um a a bunch of say one room sets or these one room apartments to rent and everyone has a commodity which is more or less uniform right so if the the thing is that this is there is not a lot of differentiation in this market more or less all one room uh, uh kind of uh, uh uh flats here are poorly built uh, there are water problems uh, uh there there is not enough ventilation uh, so as it is or this, this roughly the same size so by and large they are all the same right so in a way they able to efficiently able to manage this market in terms of okay what would be the going uh, rent for like an average uh, flat all of this is only possible if you are able to cartelize and what i say what i argue is that um, the panchayat which is a village institution is uh, becomes a platform becomes an institution which becomes extremely uh, crucial in order to make that cartelization uh, possible right in a place like shapurjat you see a different kind of a, uh, an institution crop up in shapurjat you see how um, uh, you know a families begin to invest property into property together right so if you own if you have historically held a piece of land together because of your uh, forefathers and so on so you begin to invest and upgrade that land uh, together right so it almost works like a joint stock company the only difference is that it's not anonymous like a, an actual joint stock company could be anonymous it's it's quick buying and selling in this anonymity is not possible everybody is a trusted member and you all have huge stakes in in upgrading uh, that property together so those are the two kind of uh, 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 institutions that i i look at that one in one form in munirka you see it emerge like a cartel in shapurjat you see uh, families uh, working quite like a vernacular joint stock company so uh, this is what uh, i'm trying to 
see as to what is possibly happening uh, through what I'm calling vernacular capitalism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In the next chapter, you look at the government and financial institutions that uh, shape the lives of these communities. And you've been talking about that a little bit. But um, could you give us a kind of uh, brief but long, a little longer history of how these institutions have worked? So, yeah, um, so what I was trying to respond to you in, uh, respond to you in your previous question as well, uh, that in this literature on capitalism in India, we've seen a growing interest around the term vernacular capitalism. So we've seen how uh, works on Marwaris, Banyas, Nadas, Gandas, uh, and how they've made their way into capital. But these stories, however illuminating, are also about how these communities are willingly quoting capital and trying to mimic the ways of their northern counterparts. So that's the story you get when you read about the Tatas or, say, the Calcutta Marwaris. But in this case, there is, of course, the story of that kind of quoting of capital. But there is also a story of that deep suspicion that uh, these villagers have had for the city and the capital that comes with it. Which is why you see that much of the investment that they make is through hard cash and real estate. So you would not hear of Jats of Delhi mostly making money through stocks or shares. It is money that flows in um, through hard cash that allows for strict control of who can be a part of this economy and who cannot, right? So opening up themselves up to finance capital would also mean diluting these precise social networks that they have built over generations. And that is something that they uh, uh, don't want, right? So in this chapter, what I do is I look into the nitty-gritties of these supposedly primordial social relationships and how they operate in the neoliberal economy. So which is why, say, uh, the panchayat and the kunba become so very important. The funny thing about panchayat is that uh, in, in a city like Delhi, uh, they are not recognized as formal bodies, right? Because it's urbanized. It's a municipal uh, uh, corporation that's supposed to be your local body, not a, a panchayat. But uh, these uh, local informal panchayats, what they have done is that they have uh, sometimes registered themselves as a resident welfare association. But they don't look like anything like a, a, a resident welfare association. Uh, on In their uh, program, uh, 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 this manifesto, they would have things like, oh, one should respect, uh, uh, one should respect their elders. We uh, would help with weddings in families. So it's a, it's a, it's women are not allowed to vote in, uh, until recently in Munirka, women couldn't vote for the uh, RW elections. So uh, in many ways, it continued to work like, uh, you know, a, a, a caste-based panchayat that uh, it, it used to exist as, right? Um, and I'm saying that this is what is interesting about these institutions. On one hand, they behave like 
savvy economic institutions which manage uh, uh, rent but on the other hand they also retain this very localized uh, cultural understanding of who they are as as a community as as uh, uh, as people right um so the the uh, the question around financial institutions uh, this part was a very tricky one to to research on and to negotiate because much of it's so clandestine you don't know how and nobody is willing to speak about it so i could only gather some senses of of how these networks really work uh, but like I, i was saying before that investments are often made within trusted networks of people and often hard cash and so as money begins to flow in you see two kinds of financial institutions or financial forms actually rather uh, crop up one is called uh, a committee and the other uh, uh, is called financing right and it's interesting why both these words are in english right uh, and they don't use a, 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 a say a hindi word for it so committees are a form of chit funds where 20 people invest an equal amount of money and then that becomes the pool to then borrow money and earn interest from in a situation where you don't have bank loans where property is unauthorized uh, these committees have become interesting and important alternative institutions which do something like what banks would do financing interestingly on the other hand is nothing more than an evolved form of uh, money lending so instead of waiting around for say your uh, loan period to get over for you to then claim your principal amount and your in and your uh, interest what they do is that they fix a monthly uh, installment so as a result what happens is that it keeps that chain of money uh, and its circulation far more alive than say uh, a regular money lending uh, format would so this is what they call financing so there are people who identify as in again they won't identify to you or to us but they call financiers in in the village right it took me a while to figure out who these financiers are and what does it mean to be a financier but that's precisely uh, what they do so uh, what i'm trying to see is that of course um, this is also part uh, of of a question of uh compulsion you know and this this sort of a uh uh let's say um i would say a, a fractious relationship between rent and capital the city and capital see them as with suspicion and they've had to create these alternative arrangements to trump that but the other way to look at it is also that maybe these villages also approach the city and capital with as much suspicion they they both have meant opportunities for each other but at the same time they are big threats to uh, uh, the city is a big threat to the sense of self their social fabric and their economic life so the only way to trump that is to not get absorbed either into the city or into the networks of of capital yeah so you talked about you know how how money moves and <clears throat> how money moves in clandestine ways and how money moves in uh you know under the aegis of these institutions how money moves um in ways that are not always legible and the one of i mean related to that are the various axes of prejudice and oppression um 
along which extractive rents um, move and they determine the geographic and, and demographic growth of the city, which is the subject of your fifth chapter. And you use the concept of majburi um, or compulsion in your analysis here. Um, how does that work out? Uh, thanks, Sharonik, for the question. Uh, chapter 5 is very, very close to my heart because it's precisely this chapter and the fieldwork that I did for it that made me seriously think about rent and what is so different about it. Um, so as I was doing my fieldwork, a case of a rape of a 14-year-old Manipuri girl um, in in uh, in Munirka became quite uh, it it flared up quite quite badly. Uh, the uh, the rape was committed by the landlord's son, so it became increasing. It it, it became even more uh, uh, controversial. So immediately after that incident, the landlords called a panchayat meeting and they wanted to evict all northeastern tenants. Munirka since two thousand has emerged as a space where several migrants from all over the northeast came to find a place to live. So you would see, you know, there are now local shops which sell uh, 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 food uh, uh, and vegetables and spices from the Northeast. Um, and that's quite, quite common. So they have, over a period of years, built that kind of an ecology around these, uh, around especially around a village like Munaika. But as much as this is possible, um, it's not free of its racial tension. The villagers look down upon the northeastern uh, uh, migrants as immoral who are polluting their older ways of living. The northeastern tenants also, they speak of frequent harassment at the hands of the landlords. So being vulnerable, they are made to pay higher rents. Sometimes their possessions are not returned back and, and so on. And when I was, uh, uh, so when I was uh, doing my field work and when this case of uh, rape took place, so this, is, this event made me look at this entire racial tension very, very differently. Because that's when this palpable sort of a, you know, a racial tension, it bursts open uh, into, the, into the fore, right? So um, this standoff, it, it brought this tension around rent, uh, which revolves so much around people's identities. The fact that these northeastern migrants are racially marked, it leaves them very vulnerable in a in a uh, in a in a, in a housing market where uh, uh, housing is so hard to to come across, right? So as a result, what what happens is um, that discrimination in the regular mar housing market. We all know that you know uh, it's it, it it happens by not giving you. Uh, a place to live, right? So the way in which Muslims face discrimination or say single women or queer couple, they face discrimination is by simply being refused, right? Uh, by saying that, okay, this is only a class, uh, uh, only a, a neighborhood which will only have, say, married people with, with families and respectable and so on and so forth, right? But in these places, they don't have the luxury of saying no. So eventually what happens is that uh, people who you dislike, right, who you think are polluting your place, right, your, your uh, community and your culture, are precisely the people who you are bound to be renting out to, right? So as a result, what happens is that creates this strange kind of a racial tension where um, 
where the landlord speak of majburi or compulsion right that and this is where you know the sense of having lost out to the city uh, becomes like a very emotionally charged feeling for the villagers right because they feel that they have sold out to the city they have lost to greed and this is why as in we are no longer who we used to be uh, and yeah and 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 that's the kind of tension that becomes uh 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 so in a way very generative in terms of rent right because it's precisely this discrimination which and the compulsion on the and the hands of uh, on the side on the part of uh, the northeastern tenants as well who have no other place to rent out homes from but these places who are forced to shell out a higher rent a racial surcharge uh, precisely for the fact that they uh, they're racially marked so that tension is is uh, is is quite palpable in many of these places so i speak of these vigilante groups coming up which start talking about or preserving the culture and pr- providing security right you see all kinds of youtube videos making their way in, onto uh, uh, onto onto the internet which uh, are again extremely uh, uh, which are violent of course but on the other hand it also uh, uh, um it's also sexualized in a very very different way so those are the things that i try to hit upon on on in in this chapter i remember the time myself um and it, it's something that even if you are you know i mean you research this but even if you're not a researcher you're outside the system it's still you know comes through just by living near that place um and then you know in in the next chapter you study the upward mobilities of some uh dalit communities which bilai conjectures one might make based on the ties between the nature of rent and jat identities which is you know, something that you preface uh could you elaborate a little bit on this so uh this is something i built build on from the first chapter onwards uh the jats are crucial to the story around land and speculation precisely because of their historical affinity to to land as a community uh they had been recognized as an agrarian caste uh, under the punjab land alienation act 1900 and what it did was that it forbade the sale of land to any community which uh does uh, uh, which is not agrarian right which they haven't been uh, they ha- which they haven't marked as agrarian right so as a result what happens is that a lot of land in north northwest part of india uh comes into the hands of uh, uh the jat community right um but on the other hand what happens is that uh, when you look at um dalits right uh who are mostly uh, uh, landless they have a very different relationship uh, to land right so they are not in this picture uh, in the story of speculation and you know land acquisition happening and people challenging it they are not in the story in t- until uh, the late 1990s right until the village land begins to become uh, valuable right and that's when um, what happens is that uh, uh uh the uh the land for on which say the jatav community which is a, a dalit community uh, uh holds uh, uh, uh have their houses they also become valuable right 
And interestingly, what happens, it's, it's, it's marked by two things. One is that the, in any village in, 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 in India, it has a particular kind of a caste uh, uh, structure, right? So you, what happens is that mostly the Dalits are placed on the outskirts of a village, right? But what happens is that because of uh, 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 this changing nature of urbanization and capital and all of that, what happens is that it's the fringes of the land, right, which is directly facing the city, they become, uh, those lands become more and more valuable, right? which traditionally belong to the Dalits. So this is all, there is also a story of um, land grabs and displacement of Dalits within uh, uh, this, this place, right? Uh, but at the same time, they still continue to hold some amount, right? Some, some parts of these lands. And they continue to, and what happens is that then they become, they emerge as landlords, right? The second thing that happens is that by 1990s, the first generation of uh, 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 Dalits who are strong Ambedkarites uh, uh, amongst the Jatav community, they begin to uh, uh, they 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 got uh, jobs in the 50s and the 60s, and by 1990s they have begun to retire. So their retirement money, uh, their retirement benefits, are now going into creating new kinds of rental property. Right. So this is a way in which. Uh, the the Jatavs uh, become emerge as landlord and emerge as an important constituency within the cartel, right? So it's not that this cartel is entirely a closed Jat association. It cannot be. So frequently uh, the the Jatavs collect collectively assert their position within the cartel and say, uh, and 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 yeah, there are inst- instances whether uh, when when the uh, the dominant community, the Jats have had to uh, 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 to let go and say okay and ag- agree to what the Jatavs are, uh, are arguing for. So those kinds of negotiations are now collectively possible for the Jatavs who have uh, who individually may not have a lot of property. But collectively, they are quite a sizable uh, 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 section of this uh, 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 of of uh, people who own these uh, properties within the village. But on the other hand, uh, I also trace the story of another uh, uh, Dalit community, which is the Balmikis. Now, Balmikis are historically. Uh, uh, the sweeper community uh, who are now uh, into uh, sanitation work. So as a result, they got uh, uh, municipal uh, government jobs in the beginning. But now as uh, these jobs are being more and more contractualized, they are finding themselves increasingly more and more precarious. And because of the precarious position already within the village architecture, they are unlike the Jatavs who are able to assert themselves. The Valmikis are not able to assert themselves. They, they haven't been able to become landlords the way Jatavs have. Right. So you see that even within Dalits, the whole the story of uh, uh, what rent, uh, uh, how rent plays out, is not uniform. So different people, different communities are able to uh, maneuver this uh, opportunity very, very differently. So in this, you see, Jatavs have been successful to some extent, but uh, the Balmikis have completely lost out. Mm. Um, Then um, finally, you know, the lives of oppressive 
landlords, the lives of tenants who are running out of choices, the lives of, um, you know, differentially mobile Dalit communities, all of their lives come together, I think, in, as you say, the social life of rent, which kind of enters a spectacular dimension in the in electoral politics. And uh, in the last chapter, you talk about how the social life of rent depends on electoral politics and how it occasions the movement of uh, monies. So um, could you give us a, a brief description of your final chapter? Uh, thanks, Sharonik. So uh, to me, the electoral scene is a direct corollary to the question of the social life of rent. So post-1990s, we witness how jats all over Delhi have come up as an important wealthy community owing to the growing value of real estate and speculation and so on and so forth. But much of this money we see is now being redirected into uh, electoral politics. Uh, jats have emerged as a visible community now, more important for the calculations of electoral politics. So uh, there are studies being done and uh, uh, Jats and Gujars together, they constitute almost 20% of the total contestants from both Congress and BJP. So so that's something that I uh, I knew that there is a connection between uh, this newfound aspiration uh, uh, for politics and what's happening on the side of rent. So uh, the way I see it is that this aspiration is an inevitable consequence of an economy that works on rent. Because rent is about collective ownership of an undifferentiated resource, right? And it does not quite allow heroes to emerge. Capital, on the other hand, allows those heroes to emerge, right? You know, you have those rags to riches stories. We have stories of these, you know, risk-taking, very alpha masculine figures who are, uh, you know, dabbling uh, uh, with money. But that's not the case with rent because the, the individual is always unimportant than the collectivity. The collectivity is far more important. Your 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 strength is in the fact that uh, uh, you are uh, you are in this together, right? So the individual actor doesn't matter. But as you're becoming more and more wealthy, those aspirations of social distinction also emerge, right? It's it's inevitable. So the only way to find it, or at least a dominant way to find it, is by investing in in local politics, right? Uh, and mostly, which is why it's not municipal corporations or municipal elections that they're interested in. They're interested in the legislative assembly, at least, right? Because the, to become an, a councillor is, is fine, but it still, it doesn't earn you the social distinction. You can become that, uh, earn that social distinct, distinction only when you have, uh, uh, at least you are an MLA. Right. So which is why you see more and more and as wards have become smaller. Right. This is something uh, also is that that it's important. Um, it more and more people are finding uh, it possible to now uh, 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 win uh, 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 or at least contest for elections. Right. So what I do in this chapter is I follow uh, these different figures. One is, of course, uh, a figure like an aspirational neta, right, a, a leader who wants to win any ticket, right, 
it doesn't matter so they are trying to just before the election there's a lot of euphoria around around elections and who's quoting which party and what's going to happen and who's going to eventually win the elections there's a lot of talk in these in these villages um so so yeah so so there are those figures who are constantly trying to like you know uh, uh, weigh their bets uh, in in different parties uh, and interestingly the my field work coincided with two elections which happened quite back to back in delhi uh, when aap emerged quite spectacularly as as a, this new you know uh, 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 force in 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 electoral politics so i saw very interesting dynamics around uh, how people saw aap initially they didn't see it as 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 any party of any worth but as the first election it, it, 2014 election happens and uh, aap wins it um, the there is a sudden excitement around getting that up party ticket and how people are now really looking at looking uh, at it as as something that they would uh, 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 that people are like literally making a beeline for right so all these wealthy uh, sort of people uh, who have who done well uh, over in the last decade uh, you you see them all uh, uh, trying to court up uh, and of course bjp uh, uh, for 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 a party ticket yeah just for our listeners who might not be familiar aap is aap the aam aadmi party um which literally translates into the the common man's party uh i guess and bjp is bharatiya janata party uh which is at in power at the center right now uh but yeah sorry sorry for the interruption as no, thanks for doing that actually uh, it totally skipped me that i should um so yeah and and so the, there are those aspirational leaders and along with them what you see is that there are these uh bunch of men who are uh, who don't have enough money to fight elections but the way in which they try to uh uh, uh get in uh, or get their foot to the door is by attaching themselves to one particular uh, leader so they become their sort of uh, uh, cronies who sort of do their uh, little bit of work or they at least um, follow the leader when he's walking through the the village or he's trying to go for a campaign so uh, so those kinds of uh, uh, so they they're called party karyakarta so they like calling themselves party workers or or karyakartas but what they are they essentially attached to that individual not necessarily so much to the party always so um, so what i'm trying to look at is is in a way both the uh, the leader as well as the party worker are in a way trying to salvage their sense of social distinction or call it masculinity uh through the election process right and the election becomes that field where that victory um or even if it's not a victory but the presence matters because that presence itself sets you apart from the others right who are uh uh, uh who, who who are part of the village right so that's something that uh, uh uh is is what i'm trying to tell through this particular chapter i guess you know um i can't let you go without asking you about your future work so in the book uh you end your book with some foresight about the future urbanization of delhi um so 
does this signal a new book that you know continues the work that you have done in properties of rent and what are you working on now and what is the next thing that we can expect from you uh so uh those so yeah so i i didn't didn't have a conclusion in the book i had an epilogue so where i'm i'm talking about okay what uh, uh could rent possibly mean especially when we are looking at pandemic right when this what i'm talking about is a seller's market right where uh uh uh, uh everything is about uh uh, uh it's 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 dominated by uh, uh, the sellers themselves. But what happens when a pandemic hits and suddenly no one wants to uh, live in 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 these places anymore? Most people are going back or have uh, all of that. So so I end because it was written during I was finishing the book during uh, uh, the second wave. Uh, so uh, it still has that kind of uh, uh, unanswered questions, which and what directions rent may possibly take. But uh, I don't think I am going to uh, do this work uh, after this. I think it's for future. So those were rather questions for maybe future researchers to take these questions up, uh, questions where I haven't gone and uh, maybe look at rent in a very different setting altogether. And because I do think I am quite convinced that um, we need to look more and more into uh, questions of... Uh, uh, these kinds of social relations, which uh, sometimes capital does uh, skip over. Um, so yeah, so for me, I think I, I'm, I'm, I've saturated myself with this. With this, I, I, I think I'm moving on to something else. I'm still toying over what exactly uh, it's going to be. At least my next book project, I have at least three ideas, and I do. I think I like all of them equally, but I think I'll take a while to uh, uh, settle on one. Uh, but um, at this point, I'm actually uh, working on the question of uh, housing rights, uh, and I'm trying to look at why is it that uh, uh, housing rights activism has focused so much on ownership, the question of the fact that you need to have land titles. Uh, and I'm trying to make an argument that in doing this, uh, which is a very important cause, but in doing this, what we have done is we have left this humongous vacuum of people who either cannot own land or, or cannot own property in village or in, in, in a city or do not even aspire to. And I'm talking about and I'm specifically talking talking about the migrant workers who we saw uh, the moment lockdown is announced, we see them picking up their stuff and walking to their uh, uh, homes because the city is not their home. It is never intended to be their home, right? So I think that was the moment when it triggered this this uh, uh, this thought that that I think the housing rights discourse seems to have missed this rather important uh, or I would say I would I'm, I think I'm being a little unfair I, I wouldn't say they've missed it but I think it's gotten overshadowed uh, by the whole ownership discourse in many ways so that's something I'm I'm working on the I'm also trying to look at uh, demolitions uh, and this is something before all these demolitions happened I've, demolitions is something that I've been uh, uh, trying to work on for a while 
uh, and it's stemming from my uh, uh, my PhD thesis, uh, because you do encounter demolitions in your uh, 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 when you work around cities. But then these demolitions can take very different forms, right? They're not always again they're not always eventful. They could be um, they're again bureaucratic exercises. So that's what I was interested in. But now that all these eventful de uh, uh, demolitions have happened, I also cannot ignore that. So I'm still trying to judge both this uh, uh, both these kinds of demolitions one a very bureaucratic one which is again driven by registers and uh, notes and so on and so forth and on the other this very eventful one where um, uh, uh, which is then exemplified by the image of a bulldozer right so so yeah so those are two things I'm, I'm sort of working on at this point uh, yeah hope to get them out soon thank you uh, Sushmita for coming to New NBN South Asia and talking to us, talking to us about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Arunik. This was a real, real pleasure, and we should talk more. <laughs> yes, absolutely.